All right, it is time again for reading through the New Testament. This is week number 48. We are wrapping up the New Testament. We are going to be in 2nd and 3rd John Jude and beginning Revelation uh, this week. Thank you for joining us. Um, We're going to be, let's start real quick. We've talked about 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We talked about that last week with the Antichrist and with um, all the stuff that we can learn about the background of that book. Uh, today, I want to talk a little bit of the background for uh, Jude and Revelation, and then uh, we'll we'll dive into some some material on those uh, on those books as well. So, the book of Jude, only one chapter, very short book, but it packs quite a punch. And uh, Jude was the uh, brother of James. He was writing this letter from around circa 55 to 62, somewhere in there. And uh, he's writing because he's wanting to oppose this false teaching. He opens up with those very famous words um, in verse 3 saying, uh, you know, I wanted to write about something different, um, uh, but I think I'm going to have to encourage you and exhort you and call you to um, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to contend, to fight for, and to um, compete for that. Um, so that's what Jude is is writing there already. And isn't that fascinating? Already, uh, the Apostle Paul hasn't even died yet, if this is written from circa 55 to 62. And yet already they're saying, we need to contend for the faith because false teachers have already come in. And so it, th- this is always going to be a perennial issue. Well, then later on when we get into Revelation, um, we think about the book of Revelation with uh, the Apostle John writing this and maybe maybe around 95 to 96 A.D. And he's writing it from the Isle of Patmos. Um, he's writing it to these the, the seven churches that are listed there, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so uh, he's writing this. He's given this vision uh, from Christ. And he's writing so that these uh, these Christians will be encouraged to continue on. And he shows how um, through a very visual and vivid, symbolic form of, of uh, the vision and the writing, um, he, he's writing so in, in a way that shows the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth and also of the final judgment uh, to come where everything is heading. And uh, needless to say, um, the book of Revelation is uh, the number of interpretations and the number of uh, different ways in which it is looked at in the history of the Christian church are many and varied. Um, and you can you can find many different perspectives and opinions uh, upon, upon the book of Revelation uh, to this to this day. Um, so we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, we're going to read something from Jude and then I want to use um, Horatius Bonar. Uh, he's got a, a lot of good stuff on uh, the book of Revelation, uh, meditative, uh, you know, devotional material uh, from the book of Revelation. And it's fascinating, even whenever you look at the commentating Spurgeon, when he talks about different commentaries on the book of Revelation, he at the very end says all this apocalyptic stuff, this writing, which is what Revelation is. He says, uh, basically, we can't, um, we don't know what to think about it. 
<laughs> so if Spurgeon uh, says that, um, I think it would be good for us all to, whatever perspectives you and I hold, we probably all should uh, should approach it with a certain level of humility, um, uh, because uh, it is it is a um, you know we would be lying if it wasn't a difficult book to interpret. Um, now I do think there is a way to do it, and I have my own opinions about that, as I'm sure you do too. Um, and it's not, and it is definitely worth study. Um, but at the same time, we in the in our efforts to um, study the uh, the book, we don't want to get caught up in in so many uh, small points that we miss the really big stuff in the book of Revelation, the great comfort and the truth that it does contain uh, to us. So let's read one thing here from Jude, and then we will go into the book of Revelation. This is going to be all from Horatius Bonar. Uh, Horatius Bonar, by the way, is one of the uh, commentaries uh, on Revelation that Spurgeon um, gave his thumbs up on. And it's not really a commentary. It's kind of a, uh, you know, but devotional thoughts on certain parts of the books. But he has quite a bit in Revelation. And, uh, but we're going to read, first of all, a section here from Jude upon that beautiful, beautiful benediction and close uh, to the book of Jude uh, 24 through 25. He says, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. And um, this is what Horatius Bonar has to say to us about this. He says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, speaks to us in the tone of an ancient prophet. His voice is that of Elijah or John the Baptist. It is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He speaks to the declining churches of his day. He speaks to the church of the last days. It is against the evils within the church that he specially warns, and what a picture does he draw of error, licentiousness, worldliness, spiritual decay, and ecclesiastical apostasy. Who could, who could recognize the image of the primitive church in the description he gives of prevailing iniquity? The world had absorbed the church, and the church was content that it should be so. The earth had helped the woman, and the woman had become earthly by reason of this help. It is a picture for the church in our day to study, for we are rapidly becoming part of the world and falling into the snares of the God of this world. Nay, and we glory in this as progress and culture and enlightenment, as freedom from the bigotry of other centuries and the narrowness of our half-enlightened ancestors. Time out real quick. Remember, Horatius Bonar is writing this, I probably, I don't think he lived into the 1900s. He's writing this in the 1800s. So don't think that Horatius Bonar is writing this right now. Uh, does that sound like us today, right? We glory in this as progress and culture and enlightenment, as freedom from the bigotry of other centuries and the narrowness of our half-enlightened ancestors who did not know how to reconcile contraries and to join what God has put us under. Well, that anyway, that's just a side note. That is amazing. That perfectly describes our culture today, doesn't it? And he was saying that back then. Shows some things never change. Um, uh, what does he say here? How to believe everything alike, how to combine earth's pleasures and gaieties with the joy of the world, how to both pray and to dance, how to revel and to weep for sin, how to wear both the white raiment and the jeweled ball dress, how to maintain friendship both with the world and with his enemies, how both to pamper and to starve the flesh, how to lay up treasure both on earth and in heaven, how to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils, how to be partaker of the Lord's table and the table of devils. 
The names which he applies to these inconsistent brethren will seem to some hard and strange. Spots in their feasts of charity, clouds without water, trees whose fruit withereth, twice dead plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, wandering stars, yet naming the name of Christ and numbered among his disciples. O darkness of the human heart, O subtlety of the flesh, O deceitfulness of sin, what is there that a man will not profess when it suits his purpose? What contradictions of life and creed and conscience will he scruple at when ambitious of position or fame or wealth? O church of the living God on earth, how art thou disfigured and defiled by those on whom thy name is written? How many are in thee who are not of thee, nay, who hate thee in their hearts while wearing thy livery? For whom the revelings and banquetings of earth have charms far beyond thy simple bread and wine, who are at home in the gay-lighted hail of midnight myrrh, but out of place in the upper chamber of thy Lord and Master, for whom the fair faces of earth have an attraction which thy holiness and beauty inspire not, for whom the luxuries of the social feast have a relish which they cannot find in that which is to thee better than angels' food, that flesh which is meat indeed, and that blood which is drink indeed. In this day of half-discipleship, of double service, of religious worldliness and worldly religiousness, how needful it is that the awful words of the apostle be studied by the church of God. We need them now, and ere long we shall need them more. Every day do we see or read or hear of things and scenes in connection with professing churches of Christ which make us ask, the church or the world, which is it? Are we not often constrained to say to ourselves, are Christ's words no longer true? Have the broad and the narrow ways become one? Is there now no church? Or is there now no world? Not as if all this were strange and new, either in our days or in the apostles. The germs of this apostasy were seen before the flood. It was of such men that Enoch prophesied when he proclaimed a coming judgment and a coming Lord. Ungodly deeds, hard speeches, great swelling words, these were in Enoch's day, and they were swept off by the avenging flood of water. They are now again coming up in the last days, in wider and more awful development, waiting to be consumed by the flood of the devouring fire, with which the Lord, when he comes, is to purge this polluted earth, that he may bring out of it the new earth wherein right dwelleth righteousness. Greater indeed and more hateful must be the wickedness of the last days, for while it is written of antediluvian days, it repented the Lord that he had made man upon the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. It is written of the last times, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak to them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. The way of Cain, the error of Balaam, the gainsaying of Korah, will be all combined and repeated in the wickedness of the last days. For then the human heart shall, unchecked, be permitted to overflow. And do we not see the beginnings of this overflow in our own times? Nor are these beginnings the less evil because men deceive themselves and delude others by calling evil good and good evil, by putting light for darkness and darkness for light. Then turning round to the few names who in the evil day had not defiled their garments, the apostle says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God. In verse 22 and 23, he tells these beloved ones how to treat these erring ones. They are of two classes, some not so far gone, with whom they might associate for good. Of some have compassion, go among them, doing deeds of mercy. Others so far gone that they must stand aloof from them, lest they be polluted or burned. 
They must be treated as one does some article or person that has fallen into the fire, snatch it hastily out, hating even the garment spotted with the flesh. Then lifting up his eyes to heaven, he closes with the magnificent doxology, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Let us mark here the preservation, the presentation, and the praise. First, the preservation. The word keep refers to watching and guarding, indicating not merely the fact of keeping, but the mode, vigilance, protection, and deliverance, in spite of dangers and enemies. We need to be kept from falling. We are not yet in the paradise of God, where no foot shall stumble, no enemy assail us, no snare be laid for us, no weakness overtake us. We are in the desert, in the land of danger and darkness and hostility and rugged paths. We need perpetual keeping. We are ever falling, yet ever kept, cast down, but not destroyed, troubled, yet not distressed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. We cannot keep ourselves. Self-help and self-reliance will do nothing for us in such a keeping. We have no strength, no skill, no wisdom. Yet not the less are we commanded to watch and strengthen the things that remain and fight and press onward, for in so doing the true help comes in. It is to them that have no might that God increaseth strength. It takes divine strength to keep us. It is by the power of God that we are kept. Nothing short of this will do for us, considering the strength of sin, the weakness that is in us, the power of creature will for evil, the malice of our enemies. Only a divine arm can hold us up and a divine shield protect us. No man, no angel, no church can keep us. Friends, ministers, teachers can do much for us, but they cannot keep us. He who is God our Savior only can. God is willing as well as able to keep us. The only wise God our Savior is he who keeps us. His wisdom, his love, his power, his salvation are all engaged in our behalf. He who saved us keeps us, keeps us wisely, keeps us powerfully, keeps us every moment, keeps us to the end. He who keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He kills, yet he makes alive. He bringeth down to the grave, yet bringeth up. He maketh poor, then maketh rich. He bringeth low, and then lifteth up. He keepeth the feet of his saints. Kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation is the story of each Christian's life. The glory for which we are kept is to be revealed when he who is our life shall appear. Secondly, the presentation. The word present means set or place, as when one, having finished some great work or piece of art, sets it in some conspicuous place to be seen of all, as we read that he might present it to himself a glorious church, Ephesians 5.27, or as we read again, I will set him on high because he hath known my name, Psalm 41, verse 14. First of all, this presentation is, first of all, of whom? Of those who have been kept, kept for this end, that they might be presented. They were once sinners, perhaps amongst the worst, perhaps those who were pulled out of the fire, reclaimed backsliders as well as consistent saints, with nothing in their original history or character to give them any claim to the keeping or, or the presentation obscure on earth perhaps of small esteem dying chastened unknown sorrowful men of afflictions necessities distresses perhaps of stripes and imprisonments much in labors and watchings and fastings men delivered unto death for jesus sake 
Coming out of great tribulation, men often in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in cold and nakedness. Men with thorns in the flesh and buffeted by Satan's messengers, yet kept in the midst of all these, nay, presented at last without spot or wrinkle, or any trace of their earthly tribulation and shame. God wiping away all tears from their eyes. It is the kept who are presented. The night of discipline breaks into the day of glory. Secondly, who are they presented by whom? They are presented by him who kept them. By the only wise God and our Savior. Jesus keeps. Jesus presents. It is with him that we have to do from first to last, if indeed we can speak of last in reference to a glory that is forever. He leads us in at the straight gate. He leads us along the narrow way. He leads us into the paradise of God. He leads us up to the throne, there to exhibit us as the trophies of his wisdom and power and love. And they are presented before the presence of his glory. The glory dwelt in the innermost shrine and into the presence of that glory the Redeemer carries those whom he has kept. No outer court will do for such a presentation. Jewels such as these, thus made up, are fit for the royal palace. No meaner place will do, no place less holy, less heavenly will suffice. Their sparkling luster must be laid aside beside must be laid beside the gold of the mercy seat, above which the glory dwelleth, the gems and the gold and the glory, helping each to bring out the other's splendor. It is his glory before which we are to be set. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, the glory of the Holy of Holies, a glory which shall shed down its eternal radiance upon those who are thus kept and thus presented, changing them into the same image from glory to glory, in that realm where all is glory, and from which every trace of imperfection shall have vanished, leaving nothing behind but what is divinely fair and perfect. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. The tree of life and the crown of life are theirs. The hidden manna, the white stone, the new name, and the new song are theirs. The morning star is theirs. The white raiment is theirs. A home in the heavenly temple is theirs. Christ's throne is theirs. The holy city with its jasper wall and the golden pavement and jeweled foundations and crystal river and unsetting sun is theirs. Nothing less than this is implied in, the, in this presentation before the presence of his glory. They beheld his face in righteousness and are satisfied when they awake with, with his likeness. How are they presented? Well, in two respects. First of all, faultless, and then with exceeding joy. Faultless, it is here internally pure and unblemished, not simply unchange, unchallengeable in law. This is the perfection of holiness in store for those whose name from the first has been saints of God. Without any inward stain or blemish, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Song of Solomon 4, 7 and Ephesians 5, 27. Legally and judicially, this faultlessness becomes becomes ours when we believe. But internally and morally, it is reserved for a more perfect day. Yet let us keep in mind that it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The day of spotlessness and perfection is at hand, and how will the light of that day display the utter vanity of those ideas of present perfection and holiness in which many boast themselves? Ye who think that ye have lived months and years without sin, how will ye stand the test of of that all-searching day? 
But secondly, with exceeding joy, the word is a strong one, like those of the Old Testament, leaping for joy. This is the fullness of the joy unspeakable and full of glory. This is what David's saying of, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. The days of the mourning of the saint of these saints are ended. This is the day of the resurrection, and therefore they are glad. It is the day of the master's long looked for appearing, and therefore they are glad. It is the day of reunion and with the dear and lost, and therefore they are glad. It is the day of the lamb's marriage and the bridegroom's coronation, and therefore they are glad. Then that shall come to pass, which is written. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought into the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. They shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Thirdly, the praise. This is comprised in four well-known words. Glory and majesty, dominion and power. All excellency, personal and official, regal and priestly, is here ascribed to the only wise God, our Savior. For he whose name is Savior is the God only wise. On these words of praise, which make up this divine anthem, we do not dwell. Each of them contains something special, which is difficult exactly to define or fully to unfold, and all of them taken together make up a doxology, to whose vast compass no voice nor instrument can give full effect, even in the heaven of heavens. Similar doxologies we find in the Psalms and in the Revelation. These various words of praise scattered throughout Scripture are but so many precious gems, of which with our dim eyes we can see here little beyond the outside sparkle. The full inner beauty and sublimity are in reserve for the day when, with purged vision, we shall look upon his surpassing excellence, and with loose tongues celebrate his glory in the everlasting kingdom, amid the sound of the many waters and the mighty thunderings and the voice of harpers harping with their harps. The whole of this epistle is full of solemn thought for us. It is very similar in tone to the apocalyptic epistles to the seven churches, and seems almost like a preface to them. Its warnings against declension from truth and holiness, against worldliness and luxury, against inflated self-sufficiency and boastfulness, against profligacy and carnality, against a fruitless religion and an empty name are very appalling and sound like a prelude to the last trumpet, a voice from heaven so loud and penetrating that it would seem as if even the dead would awake under its terrible thunder. What sins it exposes in the church of God, what departures from first love, what debasement and evil, it takes up and echoes the apostolic warnings of earlier days. Here we find the summary of the sins and apostasies of Christendom. The strong delusion, which believes the lie, is here. The fatal friendship between God and the world is here. The often denounced fellowship between the clean and the unclean is here. Here is represented to us the last great lapse to the Christian churches, and with it the ending of the times of the Gentiles the commixture of religion and irreligion, of error and truth, of fleshly lusts and a confident profession, of antinomian laxity and a high profession, the alliance, political or philosophical or scientific or ecclesiastical, between Egypt and Israel, between Babylon and Jerusalem. Here we see the church absorbed in the world, and the world in the church, each delighted with the other. The sons of Belial, sitting at the feast of charity and at the supper of the Lord, Error, the companion of truth, and truth, the ally of error. 
The fine arts, music, painting, sculpture, all made to minister, not to religion, but to the production of religious sensations, which makes men believe that they are religious when they are mere admirers of the beautiful and solemn in sight and sound. Thus does Jude warn us, as Paul did, against the perilous times of the last days. Now he continues on there, but I'm not going to read any more of that for now. But it's very important, isn't it? I think there's there's a lot of applicability to the book of Jude uh, then. So as you read this very short letter, um, and, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of thoughts there that, uh, that, that Horatius Bonar has there for us as we consider that. We can see the applicability of this letter to our current situation as well, that we have to contend for the faith. Now, it doesn't mean we have to be mean about it, but we don't. We don't name call, we don't uh, you know, uh, make things unnecessarily personal, but we do contend for the truth, where the truth is at stake, because we are nothing ourselves, but the truth is everything. Christ is everything. God is everything. This, this gospel, this message in the Bible is everything. And we want to contend for that as churches, as Christians, as pastors, as as deacons, as uh, members of the church of Jesus Christ. We want to contend for this faith. And so, as you read the book of Jude, um, you know, it's convicting, but it's also comforting that at the end of the day, uh, Christ will keep us, he will present us, and it will result to his praise. Okay, now let's turn our attention to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Now, I'm sure some of you, maybe some of you have been looking forward to this. I don't know. Um, but this is going to be from Horatius Bonar. Again, this is, uh, I got a Spurgeon recommendation from this, right? From his commentating commentaries um, upon this. So um, hopefully uh, this will be good. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I, my intention with this is not to get into all of the details of uh, what different opinions are about what things mean or whatever. Um, now, obviously, there has to be some interpretation, um, and Horatius Bonar had his own interpretation of this passage, or of this book, um, but I think we can really get to the some of the bigger things um, that we should all agree on, and uh, and I think that will be helpful, a helpful way to go through the book of Revelation um, together. So, first of all, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, right? This is a, a message, a, a vision that John has shown. And then in verse 8, we read this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is what Horatius Bonar has to say this. This is a section called The Fullness of the God-Man. Here the voice of the Son of God breaks in and interrupts the utterance of the Apostle. John had been speaking of Jesus, and now Jesus speaks. He speaks of himself, but in new figures and in a new style of language. We are carried back to the first chapter of the Gospel of John and the first chapter of the first epistle of John, yet the language is not the same. It is a peculiar declaration of the eternity and infinity of the Christ of God, a declaration specially suited to the present book as unfolding the ages yet to come in which this glorious one is to be all in all. It is the ascription to Christ of one of the special and incommunicable names of Godhead. In verse 4, this name is given to the Father. Now it is given to the Son, or rather to Jesus Christ, the Christ of God, the Word made flesh. 
The name as given in full is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the full name when its various parts are put together. It is the unfolding of the one name, Jehovah. For as the sunbeam is composed of many parts and colors, so is this great name, Jehovah, divisible into such parts as the above, which proclaim to us the manifold fullness of God and reveal to us his divine character and nature as the infinite and eternal Lord. The following may be given as the meaning of the above symbols. Christ, the fullness of all things, created and uncreated. We may thus set them in order. One, in Christ is the fullness of wisdom and knowledge. He is the Alpha and the Omega, as these letters form the beginning and ending of the Greek alphabet. We suppose they are meant to denote that all that can be contained in the language of man. Wisdom beyond that of all Greek philosophy is in him. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ is the fullness of all creation. He is the beginning and the ending. The firstborn of every creature is his name. He is the beginning as well as in the beginning. And as such, he is the creator of all things in heaven and in earth. The circumference as well as the center of the universe. In Christ is the fullness of all space. He is the first and the last, that which man calls space from its one extremity, if we may use the word to the other extremity, is all in him. In Christ is the fullness of all time. He is from everlasting to everlasting God. Past, present, and future are his, who was and who is and who is to come. The fullness of the past eternity is his, the fullness of the future eternity is his, and the fullness of the vast present is also his. The infinity of time belongs to him. He is himself that infinity. The eternal past is his, and his is the eternal future. He is living eternity. Fifthly, in Christ is the fullness of all power. His name is the Almighty, the Lord God Omnipotent, to whom all power is given in heaven and on earth. As the creator of the vast universe, as the sustainer of all being, as the redeemer of his church, as the Lord strong in battle, as able to save to the uttermost, mighty to save, as the binder of Satan, as the destroyer of Antichrist, as the renewer of the earth, he is almighty. And when the great day of his wrath has come, who shall be able to stand? Thus, Jesus here reveals himself in this book of the Revelation. For all these excellencies come forth into special manifestation in this glorious book, which may well be called the fifth gospel, the record of Christ in heaven, the unveiling of his love and power. He is the same Jesus with unchanged heart and undiminished love, bending in grace and pity over this earth, his well-beloved world as it has been called. For here we have the long-suffering and the salvation of which Paul and James and Peter speak in their epistles, the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All fullness is in Jesus, the fullness of the God-man, divine and human fullness, the fullness of love and power, the fullness of grace and glory. It is the very fullness which we need, and it is accessible to us, free to us, brought down to earth and placed at our side, pressed upon us that we may take it and use it all. It is a fullness which eye has not seen nor ear heard. It contains unsearchable riches, being the fullness of him who is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. It is altogether suitable, 
so that no one can say there is not in it provision to suit my need. It is of this fullness that he himself speaks elsewhere when he says, I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white clothing that you may be clothed, and eye salve with which to anoint your eyes that you may see. In this fullness there is something infinitely attractive. It is as gracious as it is glorious. It is fitted to win us. It is God's provision for the needy. How large and excellent. From this fullness no one is excluded. It is open on every side that all may partake. Everyone and whoever are the words in which the invitation is made. What can be wider or freer? How could eternal life be brought nearer or made more accessible? Jesus stands beside you. He presents you with himself. What more could he do? What more could you ask or need than this? So right at the beginning, uh, Horatius Bonar here is, is highlighting to us the fullness of this Christ that is in the book of Revelation. He says it's like a fifth gospel. And that's very, 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 I cannot emphasize that enough that as we read the book of Revelation, do not forget Jesus. Because to be honest, there are many interpretations of Revelation that forget Jesus, um, that, that seem to go off in many different ways. Um, but forget Christ. Don't forget Jesus as you read every page of this book. The second reading and the last one from Revelation that we're going to do today is called the Symbolic Sevens. Um, and it's taken from uh chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, he says this, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this will, I think, also flow into chapter 2 and 3 as well, uh, but kind of give you some, some food for thought as you read these sections as well. He says, right, says the Lord, right. You cannot now speak to these churches over which you once did watch, but write, write the things that you have seen, this glorious vision of my person, a vision like that which you saw when you were with me on the holy mount. Write the things which are, the things related to, relating to the present state of these churches. Write the things which shall be hereafter, the words of prophecy which this book is to contain. Write them for the churches now. Write them for the churches throughout all the ages. What you write, let them read. The writing is the writing of God. Christ dictates the words of the message, and John writes them. Yet even in this writing, he is something more than a mechanical instrument. The Spirit takes full possession of his whole man, so that while it is the Spirit that speaks, it is also John. No, and it is Christ also. The thoughts and words are divine, and yet it is in a human mold that these thoughts and words are cast. We recognize the voice of the beloved disciple, but we recognize also the voice of the Spirit. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. Here is the mystery or secret of the vision which you have seen. The seven stars are the seven angels of the churches, for each church, like each kingdom, has its angel. The seven candlesticks are the seven churches. The symbols or figures in this book are very vivid and expressive. They are not ornaments, but truths, not flowers, but fruit-bearing trees. They are pictures, no doubt, but each has an articulate voice and a living eye and a powerful hand. Let us arrange and group together the symbols of the first three chapters into sevens, 
for it is that number that is so conspicuous among them. First of all, the seven candlesticks or churches. There were hundreds of churches in the apostles' days throughout the Gentile earth, but the Holy Spirit selects seven of these and presents them to us by name, all in Asia Minor, not in Palestine, for from Judea the glory had departed. They are representative churches, chosen to set forth seven distinct states in which the church of God would in all ages be found. Now, of course, we know that this is... um. Not necessarily, this is, this is one interpretation of these passages, but it, anyway, just so you know, this is, this is where uh, he's coming from. They do not represent or predict seven consecutive states in which the church would be found during the succeeding ages, but seven coexisting states in which the church would be found in each age. Now, that's very important, isn't it? Because um, whenever I first read that, I thought he was going to be saying these are seven, just, you know, that's, that's been one interpretation. These things are going to one after the other. That is one interpretation of this passage. Another interpretation would be what he's giving here. These are not like this one and then the next and then the next. It's, these are seven different states, different types of churches that you're going to always find all the time. But seven coexisting states in which the church would be found in each stage, so that there would be always an Ephesian state and a Smyrnian and so on. Every age would exhibit these seven spiritual phases, so that, taking this as our key, we might always classify the church. We shall at all times find churches, congregations, individuals corresponding to these seven photographs. It is this that makes these epistles so searching. Were they consecutive and prophetic? Much of their practical design and importance would be lost. Let each saint and each congregation be always asking, Is it I? As the words to Ephesus or Sardis or Laodicea are read, we shall be sure to find one of them to suit us. Secondly, the seven stars. These epistles are sent to the churches through the angel or star. The lamp and the star are both, each in its own way, figures referring to the dark night in which the church now exists. Shining in the midnight skies, there is the star, and shining down here on earth, there is the lamp. The members of the church are addressed through this angelic messenger. He carries to them from the Lord a letter descriptive of their spiritual state and containing corresponding warnings and encouragements. Thirdly, the seven titles of Christ. We find these in the first chapter, and we find them repeated in the second and third in connection with the admonitions to the churches. First of all, he is, this is, these are the seven titles now. First of all, he is he who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden candlesticks, the source of all light in heaven and earth, the watchful guardian of the churches. Number two, the first and last, the dead and living one, he to whom all things belong in time and space, above and beneath, the crucified Christ, the risen Lord. Number three, he who has the sharp two-edged sword, the judge, the searcher, the, ex- the executioner, God's true minister, who bears not the sword in vain. For he who has eyes like fire and feet like fine brass, he with the penetrating glance and feet all splendid, yet repellent of evil. Five, he who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, he who has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and who has it for his church and for ministry therein. 6. The holy, the true, the holder of David's key, he who is the fountainhead of holiness, faithful to his word, true successor of David, heir of his house and throne. And 7. The amen, the faithful witness, the beginning of the creation of God. 
he who is the true witness of the Father, who created all things by the word of his power. Each of these seven titles is wonderful, each a brilliant orb of glory, each a storehouse of heavenly provision, each a mine of gold, each a coronet of gems. Altogether, how transcendently ex- excellent and glorious. Fourthly, we also have the seven searching words. I know your works, your works, not your words, but your works, what they are, whether real or formal, genuine or heartless. All that you do and have done, I know. How piercing and overawing. He who cannot be deceived or imposed upon as to quality or quantity, he tells you that he knows you and your works. O saint of God, O child of his love, O church of his election, he knows you. Fifthly, the seven words of grace. To each of the churches he has some loving message suited to its state. These are various, scattered through each epistle. Of Ephesus, he acknowledges the labor and the patience, the hatred of evil and the unfainting endurance. Of Smyrna, he acknowledges the spiritual wealth in the midst of earthly poverty. And to her, he says, fear none of those things which you shall suffer. To Pergamos, he says, you hold fast my name. In the, in the case of Thyatira, he acknowledges the charity and service and faith and patience. In Sardis, he owns the few names who have not defiled their garments and promises that they shall walk with him in white. To Philadelphia, he speaks of her fidelity to him and his love to her. But the most gracious words are reserved for Laodicea, the words, the worst of the seven churches. He offers her gold and clothing and eye salve. He knocks at her door and offers himself as her guest. He tells her of his love and rebuking and chastening. Sixthly, the seven exhortations. How suitable, how various, yet how brief. To Ephesus, he says, remember whence you are fallen. Repent and do the first works. To Smyrna, be faithful unto death. To Pergamos, repent. To Thyatira, hold fast until I come. To Sardis, be watchful, strengthen what remains. Remember, hold fast and repent. To Philadelphia, hold fast that which you have. To Laodicea, be zealous and repent. In each of these, each one of us may find something for ourselves. And also seventhly, the seven rewards for the seven conquerors. Each epistle takes for granted the warfare. Warfare for the churches as well as for each member. And each epistle speaks of victory. To him who overcomes is the keynote of each. Battle and victory, to these are we called. And then there are the spoils of battle and the division of these among the conquerors. The strong one is overthrown and his kingdom is divided among the victors. But there are special rewards. To Ephesus, there is the tree of life, the restoration to paradise, the gift of the paradise of God. To Smyrna, the crown of life and deliverance from the second death through him who was dead and is alive and who is now crowned with glory and honor. To Pergamos, the hidden manna, the white stone and the new name, each of these denoting something very glorious. To Thyatira, power over the nations and the morning star. She is to be made partaker of the Messiah's glorious reign on earth. To Sardis, the white clothing and acknowledgement before the fathers and the angel, before the father and the angels. To Philadelphia, the being made a pillar in God's temple, the name of God in his city, the new name. Seventhly, to Laodicea, a seat upon Christ's throne. This is glory. Thus are we heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We shall reign with him forever. Even Laodicea is counseled and besought to return from her lukewarmness by the assurance not only of reception into former favor, 
but of a kingdom. Herein is love, love which many waters cannot quench nor the floods drown. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And there you have it. Well, I hope that's been helpful for you as we begin the book of Revelation and such. So read it, see what you think about it. Um, and, and also, uh, uh, I, I think uh, that, that seven sevens, I think, is actually really helpful um, uh, to think about what's going on in these first few chapters to kind of get our grips into what's going on with all these symbols and everything like that. Enjoy reading it. It's a lot of fun. Um, but again, keep your eye on Christ. And we'll be back next week. All right. Take care and God bless.